The exits, uh, children may be dismissed to junior church, and I appreciate Katie reading today, and uh, I think um, Mercedes is on the computer with Ken Minio. They're kind of rotating. It's great to have children and youth involved in the service. We're going to be parking on that passage, so just stay there through the sermon, if you would, as we talk about the assurance of hope today. In his book, The Divine Commodity, The Divine Commodity, uh, author, writer, Speaker by the name of Sky Jatheni. Sky Jatheni shares a story from a trip he took to India with his father. Sky Jatheni went to India with his father. Actually, I believe he's from uh, this uh, India uh, heritage. And while walking the streets of New Delhi, a little boy approached them. Uh, Sky says this little boy was skinny as a rail and naked but for some tattered blue shorts. His legs were stiff and contorted like a wire hanger twisted upon itself. Because of his condition, the little boy could only waddle along on his calloused knees. He made his way towards Sky and his father and he cried out, One rupee, please. One rupee. Sky describes what happened when his father eventually responded to the boy's persistent begging. So imagine this little boy can't walk, kind of has to waddle along in great poverty in India, asking for one rupee, which I believe is some sort of monetary value there. And so Sky's father responded and said, What do you want? One rupee, sir, the boy said, while motioning his hand to his mouth and bowing his head in deference. My father laughed, Sky says. Sky responds, my father laughed. One, uh, my father laughed. How about I give you five rupees, his father said. The boy's submissive countenance suddenly became defiant. He retracted his hand, the boy did, and sneered at us. He thought my father was joking. Who would give him five rupees? He thought that his father was having a laugh. He thought Sky's father was having a laugh at his expense. After all, no one would willingly give up five rupees. The boy started shuffling away, mumbling curses under his breath. Sky writes, my father reached into his pocket. Hearing the coins jingle, the boy stopped and looked back over his shoulder. My father was holding out a five rupee coin. He approached the stun boy and placed the coin into his hand. The boy didn't move or say a word. He just stared at the coin in his hand. We passed him and proceeded across the street, Sky says. A moment later, the shouting resumed, except this time the boy was yelling, Thank you, thank you, sir, bless you. He raced after us once again, but not for more money, but to touch my father's feet, is what Sky writes. Sky continues, This, I imagine, is how our God sees us. As miserable creatures in desperate need of his help. But rather than asking for what we truly need, Rather than desiring what he is able and willing to give, we settle for lesser things. Do you think that is true of us? Oftentimes, God may see us in our real state. God sees us really, truly as needy people, and we need God's help. We need God's mercy. We need the Holy Spirit. We need salvation. 
But oftentimes we ask for the one rupee, so to speak, when God can give us the five or ten or ten thousand. In John 10.10, in John's gospel, Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says he came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. Do you realize that? Do you realize God loves us and he sees us with our real needs? God sees our needs. God wants to save us. God wants to save us. That's what 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 is about. God, the people are asking Peter and the people are asking, why hasn't Jesus come again? Why hasn't he made things right? Why hasn't he restored things? Why hasn't he come back as a judge yet? And Peter responds, the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And God not only doesn't only wants to want to save us, He wants to give us abundant life. We got to recognize it. We have to trust in Him for fullness of life. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our salvation. You can see that in Ephesians 1.14 and Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, but we do settle for lesser things, but we do have hope. So today we're going to look at the assurance of hope from the passage that Caitlin uh, read from Romans 8, 18-25. The believer has a new hope, the final redemption of all things. And first, I want to talk about verse 18, which is about present grief versus future glory. Present grief versus future glory. And I'm going to reread each verse as we talk about it so it's fresh on our mind. Uh, verse 18 reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For I consider, Paul is writing, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let's put this passage, this verse, in context. Paul had been writing about how we are adopted. Paul had been writing about how we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul had been writing about how the Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. If you remember, we talked about that last week. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit within us testifies that we, it gives that total testimony that we are adopted into God's family, that we are sons and daughters of God Most High, that we are heirs of God. Now Paul begins to write about how our present suffering doesn't compare with our future glory. Paul is now writing even more so of our hope, our hope. I noticed that Paul acknowledges suffering. Do you notice that? He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, let's stop there for a minute. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul mentions sufferings, but he also mentions present time, doesn't he? He doesn't deny suffering. We all suffer in this present time, don't we? We are all going through struggles. We all go through sicknesses, don't we? If not ourselves, our friends and family face sicknesses. We all go through mental illnesses, don't we? If not ourselves, our friends and family may face mental illness of some way. We all go through spiritual attacks. Everyone really goes through spiritual attacks, I believe, at one time or another. We all go through temptations and even spiritual warfare. See Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. This is true whether we realize it or not. We all suffer. And Paul writes right here is acknowledging that we suffer. Paul does not say the suffering is not real, does he? 
He doesn't say that suffering is part of your imagination. He doesn't do that. Paul does not say toughen up, does he? He doesn't say, I know you're suffering. You're being babes in the faith. You're being children. Toughen up like me. He doesn't say that. He says, we all go through suffering. The suffering of this present time. He acknowledges it. And Paul is comparing the suffering with our future with Jesus. He is saying the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of the present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He acknowledges, y'all, we, we are going to suffer. Actually, I believe that Christians suffer more than non-Christians because the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says that whom the Lord loves, whom the Lord loves, he chastises, he disciplines. He's raising us up. Second Timothy 2 says he's preparing us to reign with him. And Paul is acknowledging here that we do suffer, but the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Someday we will have eternal glory in heaven with God. And it's going to be so much greater, so amazing. I actually think once we get to heaven, the sufferings of this present time are going to be like a, a, fading, a fading memory. You know, we'll remember the good things of this life. We are going to have our memory in heaven. I do believe that. But the bad times will kind of be like that fading memory because heaven is going to be so much grander. I had a nightmare the other night. I dream about snakes. I hate snakes. Me and Indiana Jones have that in common. We hate snakes. And isn't it funny? Like, I woke up and I knew it wasn't real, but I started to get my mind off the snakes before I could go back to sleep. I don't like to think about snakes, okay? And once we get to heaven, it's going to be so awesome. I believe the sufferings that we go through in this present life, the hard times, the bad times, they're going to be kind of like that fading memory of a nightmare. Or maybe, maybe we'll realize what God did through those sufferings, what God was doing, how God worked. We'll have the, uh, the fuller picture developed. You know how you have a one-step camera? Remember those cameras? They were Polaroids. You could take the picture and like you wait 30 seconds and, and fan the picture and eventually you get the picture right then. I mean, who could imagine the way we can see pictures right away now? Remember those though? And you watch the picture develop. We don't see the full, complete picture right now either. Someday we're going to be in heaven. We won't know everything. We won't be omni omniscient like God. But we might have a more complete understanding. Paul is saying there is suffering. But the suffering does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's contrasting the two. Paul's referring to the resurrection of the body, I believe. Someday we're going to have a new heaven, a new earth, a new perfect body. And so here's a, a very important point. I might say it twice. We are to make our present pain seem small in comparison to what is coming. We are to make our present pain seem small in comparison to what is coming. I paraphrase, I paraphrase that from John Piper in his book, Desiring God. We are to make our present pain seem small in comparison to what is coming. Look at these other scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. We share Christ's sufferings. We go through suffering, but we will rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. And as 2 Corinthians 4, 17 said, you know, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, it will be indescribable. Someday, God will make all things new. You can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 66 and Isaiah 60 and many other passages. A few weeks ago, I was praying with somebody who recently had lost a loved one. And as I was praying with them, and I, I think the Holy Spirit really convicted me this way, the person had died in the hospital. Um, she was 90 years old. And I thought, this person was a believer in Christ. This person is a believer in Christ. They're in heaven with Jesus. And I thought, this person, this individual, is way, way, way happier in heaven. Nobody is in heaven regretting that they are there, regretting that they did not live longer on this earth. I don't believe that. Not at all. They're in heaven. Even think of Lazarus. Actually, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, took him out of the tomb, I think that might be why Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. If you want a good memory verse this week, Jesus wept. Okay, John chapter 11, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Maybe it's because Jesus knew Lazarus was going to have to die again. Here, Lazarus is having a party in heaven, having a great time in heaven. And Jesus, all of a sudden, calls out to the tomb, Lazarus, come out. He comes out as a display of Jesus, his power of being God and his power over death and miracles. But, Je but Lazarus was in heaven. He was going to die again. I'm sure he's in heaven right now. Many times we are thinking, Lord, why did you take them so early? And they are in heaven thinking the opposite. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to judge the world? When are you going to bring my loved ones up to earth? How much longer do they have to suffer on that fallen, depraved world? In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, we have a scene of that where saints who die during the tribulation period are in heaven. Saints who were saved during the tribulation period died of persecution. Martyrs during the tribulation period are in heaven pleading to God, how long do you bring judgment? So what's coming? Let's look at the next few verses. We're going to see Paul's metaphor of creation in verses 19 through 23. Verse 19 reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation waits with eager longing. Notice the modifiers. Eager longing. Not just longing. Eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It says the creation. Paul now broadens his subject. In verse 18, Paul used I and us in verse 18, but, which are both personal pronouns. In verse 18, Paul was talking personally, I and us. And now in verse 19, Paul goes to the general. Paul now looks at a broader view. Now he looks at this not from an individual perspective, but rather from a broader perspective. Now Paul writes about all of creation's suffering. All of creation is waiting with eager longing. Or it could be literally translated... As eager expectations, eager expectations, all of creation is waiting expectantly. All of creation is waiting expectantly. And how are they waiting? Eagerly. All of creation is earnestly waiting, earnestly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation, not just humanity, all of creation. One person writes, Paul personified it as leaning forward eagerly in anticipation of the great day in which God will fully redeem it. 
All of creation. Imagine it. All of creation eagerly longing. All of creation leaning forward expectantly, waiting for God to make all things new. Now, what is all of creation waiting for? Creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And you could say sons and daughters of God. Who are the sons and sons and daughters of God? That is us. Actually, we are sons and daughters of God, and that is powerful. Remember verse 16 was about this. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I talked about that last week. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. All of us who are saved in Christ. And creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And this would mean glorifying the sons of God when all is made new and all is made right. What is wrong with creation? Sin, right? Everything is fallen. Everything is depraved. All creation needs redeemed. All creation means all animals, insects, stars, asteroids, rivers, oceans, cells. Everything is marred by sin and everything is waiting for redemption. Look at verses 20 through 21 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that's God, who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I know that can get kind of choppy, so we're going to break it down for a moment. Everything, all creation was subjected to futility. Vain. Worthlessness. Depravity. One source says, this refers to the inability to achieve a goal or purpose. Because of man's sin, God cursed the physical universe. And now no part of creation entirely fulfills God's original purpose. Hear that? Because of sin, going back to Genesis 3, everything is fallen. No part of creation entirely fulfills God's original purpose. And now I get to quote from a guy which maybe you've heard of, Bobby Murphy. Uh, Pastor Bobby wrote about this in a blog article a few years ago. And as I read that and reread that, I thought, I want to put this in the message. Uh, he wrote this. Those verses, this is a direct quote. Those verses, Romans 8, uh, 19 through 21. Those verses reveal when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, so did the rest of creation, also called nature. There is a spiritual link between humans and nature, so defined that nature's destiny from the beginning of Genesis 1-1 was tied up with the destiny of humans and still is. When humans sinned and were cursed, so was nature. As beautiful and joy-producing as nature is, therefore there's something wrong with it. It's futile and corrupt. This futility and corruption are evident in non-living things and the second law of thermodynamics. That is the law of increased entropy. Entropy Left to itself, our sun, for instance, will eventually grow cold and die. Things are getting worse. As sociologist Tony Campolo points out, though, it's most evident in animals in two obvious characteristics God never intended, but they routinely display. One in animals is the brutality. Their brutality. So hawks swoop down and rip open the necks of mice and squirrels. Or adorable lion cubs with bloody faces chew at the carcass of a zebra their mother killed. The other characteristic is their fear. The rabbit frozen in its tracks. The wildcat hunching its back. The rattlesnake poised to strike. Or dogs slinking to the ground. Those are without doubt 
postures of alarm. That shows all creation is fallen. All creation is depraved. One source shares about verses 19 through 21 are Paul's commentary on Genesis 3. Verses 19, Romans 8, 19 through 21, these verses are Paul's commentary on Genesis 3. Paul's commentary on what happened when the world fell. When sin into the world, everything is fallen. Nothing is as it was, well, I mean, there are some things, but nothing, it is not as it was meant to be. When Jesus returns to earth with his people, the curse will be lifted from the world. Inanimate creation is personified in this passage as looking forward to the restoration of creation. Even inanimate creation is looking forward to the restoration of creation. The other day I was cutting my grass and I saw this little animal squeaking away. It wasn't a snake. If it was a snake, I would have chopped his head off. No good snake. There's a show now called Snake City. They save snakes. I don't know why. Chop off his head. Only, anyways, this was <laughs> like a little mouse, and it squeaked, and it was really little cute. It was a mole. It was a mole. And so I got a little thing, and I put it on it, and I took it into another yard. But... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't kill the little mole, nor did I give it to my dog. It was a few weeks ago. I was cutting my grass, and I get to a place next to the pool. I see little baby bunnies. And, you know, can't we just kind of be drawn to them? When we realize they want to live, they're struggling to survive, all creation is fallen. All creation is depraved. And the only thing that will not exist in the new heaven and new earth is snakes and spiders. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe they'll be there. <laughs> anyway, actually, the Bible says spy, uh, snakes will be there. There is a passage where it says say they will be there. So creation was subjected to futility, but not willingly. How was creation subjected to futility? Who is the him who subjected it? And this happened at the fall. God ultimately subjected it. But this happened because of sin entering the world. But there is a goal. Verse 21 shows that creation is waiting to be set free. There is a goal. Creation is waiting to be set free. That is the goal. Now let's look at verses 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. All of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And so are we. Paul brings it back to us. All of creation is looking forward to redemption. Look at the language Paul is using. All of creation is going through labor pains. All of creation is going through childbirth. In verse 23, Paul comes back to us. All of creation is groaning in childbirth. And so are we. We Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means that we have the first fruits. And that is the pledge of the Holy Spirit that more is to come. Now, we may ask, what is the first fruits? When he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, what what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think the first, the, 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 the first fruits, the pledge of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit is with us as a pledge that more is to come. We have the Holy Spirit with us right now, and someday in the future, in the new heaven and new earth, we will literally and physically be with God in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. However, I think there's more here. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general self-control. These are signs of the Holy Spirit within us. 
And so we are first groaning and waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, but we are ultimately waiting on the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, the new, the, the, our resurrected body. By the way, there, another part about the first fruits of spirit is likely spiritual gifts. God gives us spiritual gifts. I think right here Paul is talking about us waiting on the resurrection. And Paul's going to come back to that in verses 29 through 30, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Also, one shares this connection. And, and I like it when we can connect these things to other things in the Old Testament. And, and this is about Leviticus 23. First fruits may have Old Testament offering connotations from Leviticus 23. The first fruits offering was to show one's trust in the Lord that if he has provided, if God has provided early aspects of the harvest, he could be trusted for good provision later, right? When, when they gave in Leviticus 23, when they gave their offerings, they were supposed to give from the first fruit, from the first, from the best. They were supposed to trust that if the Lord provided the first fruit, he will provide more later on. And that's an interesting connection now that the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a pledge, that we're going to have more with God later on. God has given the Spirit to believers at the present time, establishing an unbreakable connection between the initial experience of salvation and its end in eternity. The Holy Spirit is both the first installment of our salvation and the down payment of the pledge that guarantees the remaining stages of the work of God in our salvation. So verses 24 and 25 show that we wait patiently and confidently. We wait patiently and confidently. Look at these verses. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul talks about our hope. We were saved with the hope of when God will make all things new. We hope not for what we see, but we hope for what we do not see. This is why we wait with patience. Think of it this way. Until, what, 30 or so years ago, maybe 40 years ago, Mothers did not see their babies before they were born. No ultrasounds, right? I don't know when they actually came, but I know that my mom did not know that I was going to be a boy until I was born. My older brother, uh, my dad's good friend, thought for sure was going to be a girl and had a dress picked out and everything. They did not know. They did not know. And now at this point, you know, you can get the ultrasound and you can know it's a boy or it's a girl. So for many of you... You went through that. You did not know if you were going to have a baby boy or a baby girl until the baby came. You, you know what that was like. You had hope, right? You hoped for a boy. You hoped for a girl. You hoped for a healthy baby. Many times probably you just hoped for a healthy baby, right? And you had to wait. And you waited. And you hoped. And you waited. And you hoped. And then you had to go through labor, right? And then once you go through labor, everything's worth it. And you have the baby, and that seems to be the image that the Apostle Paul is using right here. Paul wrote about our creation being in birth pains in verse 22. And like a pregnant mother, creation is waiting for the baby to come. The birth is when God will restore all things and he will make all things new. We do not see our hope yet. We don't see it yet. We don't see the new heaven and new earth yet, right? We don't see our resurrected bodies yet. But we know it's to come. We hope for that. That's our hope. We trust in the promises of God. Our salvation is secure as long as we persevere in the faith. We must persevere in the faith. But our salvation 
is as of yet unseen. So it is a matter of hope. We wait in faith. We wait in patience. And someday the Lord is going to restore all things. We have the Holy Spirit with us right now as a pledge, as a down payment. We have spiritual gifts and fruit of the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit's work in the Word of God and in the body of Christ. As we wait with patience. Let's make some applications. Then I have a powerful story. Our suffering does not compare to our eternal life. We must remember this. We must always remember that this world is the only hell we will experience as Christians. We must always remember to keep it in perspective, which is difficult, I know. We must always remember that people in heaven are not thinking they wish they lived longer. They're happy in heaven. That doesn't mean that they're not eager for you to be in heaven with them. I'm sure they are. But heaven will be amazing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. We must remember that God has a better plan. All of creation is fallen, depraved, verses 20 through 23. We must know that we have the first fruits. We have the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance, verse 23. We must remember that we have hope. In Christ, we always, always, always have hope. We must patiently wait for when God restores all things, verses 24 through 25. We must share this good news of Jesus with others. The doctor said... If you are a believer in miracles, this would be one. The doctor was talking about Alcides Marino. Alcides Marino. By every law of physics and medicine, Marino should have died. Marino was a window washer in Manhattan. He rode platforms with his brother Edgar high into the sky to wash the skyscrapers. From there he could look down to see the pavement far below where the people looked like ants. On December 7, 2007, December 7, 2007, catastrophe struck the Marino family. As the brothers worked on the 47th story of a high-rise, their platform collapsed, and Alcides and Edgar fell from the sky. 47 stories high, and a platform collapses. If you are a believer in miracles, this would be one. No, Alcides Marino did not land on a passing airplane or catch his shirt on a flagpole or have anything else amazing happen like you see in the movies. He fell the entire 47 stories to the pavement below. As would be expected, his brother Edgar died from the fall. But somehow, Alcides did not die, he lived. For two weeks, he hung on to life by a thread. Then on Christmas Day, he spoke and reached out to touch his nurse's face. One month later, the doctors were saying that he would probably walk again someday. He fell 47 stories. And one month later, he was told he would probably walk again someday. If you are a believer in miracles, this would be one. In the beginning of the human race, Adam fell from a great height. From sinless glory in the image of God, Adam rebelled against God and fell into sin and death and judgment. And in this terrible fall, he brought with him the whole human race. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit everlasting life. 
God the Son, Jesus, left the heights of heaven and descended to the earth to become a man. He lived a sinless life and then willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of Adam's fallen race. On the third day, Jesus rose again, and in his resurrection, he made it possible for all to rise again and live forever. If you are a believer in miracles, this would be one that Jesus has willingly come down from heaven to go to the cross, die for our sins, and rise again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We worship you for Jesus. You went to the cross for us. You took our place. You died in our place on the cross. You went to heaven in the ascension ten days before Pentecost. You send us the Holy Spirit as a down payment that more is to come. Lord God, we all go through sufferings and certainly some more than others. I pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would be an ever constant reminder that more is to come, that you have a better plan. Actually, this is part of your better plan. And someday you will redeem all things. We'll have resurrected new bodies and a new heaven and new earth. And our present suffering just doesn't compare with our eternal way to glory. Lord God, I pray that we would all live for you. And certainly if there's anybody who's hearing my prayer right now and this sermon, this worship service, who needs to rededicate their life to you, may today be the day to recommit their life to you. Anyone who has never trusted you as Lord and Savior, may they confess today that they are a sinner in need of a Savior and you are the Savior. May they today believe in you as the one and only Savior and trust in you and commit to you. And tell you that in a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I confess that I've sinned in Mr. Perfect Standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am trusting in you for eternal life and committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. Lord God, we all need your help. We all need the Holy Spirit's help. I pray that you would minister to all of us this day as we close the service in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the praise team leads this closing song, as always, the altars are always opened, uh, not just for prayers of commitment. Certainly, if you want to come forward and commit your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can do that. But also, you can always just, if you feel like you just need to come and pray to the Lord about, and you want to kneel at the altars, do that. Of course, you're always welcome to stay and even remain in your seat and pray to the Lord, too.